Family, go ahead and grab a seat. Go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, I'd like to thank you all uh, for abiding by our rule of nobody sitting in the front row. It makes me feel very, <laughs> very warm and special that nobody wants to sit by me. Um, although I get it, I get it. Uh, if we haven't met yet before, my name is Dan. I serve as one of the pastors here alongside of Jason Phillips, who helps run all of our campus life things. So everything from connections to life groups, he's overseeing all of that fun stuff. We're grateful that you are here with us uh, today. If this is your first time uh, at a LifePoint church, LifePoint Worthington, we're so glad you're here with us today. I want to let you know one of the easiest ways to begin taking a next step, maybe finding out more about this community, and what it might look like for you to be involved or just to have a conversation uh, is to take your phone and you can scan that QR code that's on one of the seats right in front of you that will take you to a quick form you can fill out uh, and we'll also give you the opportunity there to, uh, to designate one of our partner ministries that we'll give a $5 donation to in your honor uh, just as a way of saying thank you for being here today. I also wanna let you know that we are jumping into the deep end of the pool uh, today the last several uh, weeks across all of the LifePoint campuses, we have been studying the book of Revelation. Now, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know that this can be kind of a, a notoriously challenging book in the New Testament to make sense of. There's lots of images and symbols and signs and numbers, and there's you know talk of judgment. In fact, uh, when we were having our first launch Sunday, just two, three weeks ago now, uh, we were going to jump into Revelation chapter 7. Uh, one of the, the beginning of like this judgment section in the book of Revelation. And I said, you know what? I feel like that might not be the most awesome passage to have our first Sunday on. Uh, so we took a break here at LifePoint Worthington uh, and are now jumping back into the book of Revelation. At some point, I really need to thank Dean uh, for having this be the first sermon series I'm stepping into uh, at, at LifePoint. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate that. Uh, because at the end of the day, right, th this is a challenging book in the New Testament for us to make sense of, right? We'll talk about more, more in a moment why that is, but for now, I think it's really helpful for us to keep in mind that the book of Revelation is not written to confuse us. It's written to uh, comfort and in some areas confront us. It's not written to confuse us. In many ways, we're going to see this uh, over the next couple weeks. The book of Revelation is more about having a present hope here and now than it is about a future calendar. Right, so we're going to be uh, studying this over the next several weeks, finishing out the book of Revelation. There's going to be a ton of things we're going to have to fly over. So I'll also say this. If you have any questions that come up just from some of the things we talk about today or the next couple weeks, I'd invite you, you can write me an email uh, and we'll, we'll dialogue about these questions. I know there's some confusing things in here. My email is jasonphillips at lifepoint.com. <laughs> No, uh, send an email to dano at lifepointohio.com. I'd love to talk with you more about it. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, though, why don't you open with me to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16, you can flip there in your Bibles. Revelation 16, I'm also going to have it on the screen behind me uh, when we read it together. Uh, but while you're turning there, I want you to think about something for just, just a moment. 
Uh, it's interesting. Each year, Merriam-Webster, the, the, the dictionary, uh, in conjunction with the New York Times, releases a word of the year. And the way they get that word of the year right now is they, they look at all of the people who've gone onto their website to search for a particular word and search for the meaning of that word. And in this particular year, they saw that one word jumped up uh, about 75% higher uh, than it was the previous years or in all previous years. This was actually 2018. Uh, the word of the year for Merriam-Webster was the word justice. Think back for a moment. What 2018 was like. We were going through lots of uh, Supreme Court issues. We were uh, having lots of questions about what justice looks like applied in our own society. And, uh, but when you think about that, you know, of course, Miriam Webster and the New York Times did not know uh, what we know now was coming just two years later with a global pandemic that plunged us into many ways about conversations about justice at a more fundamental and deeper level, maybe than we've had uh, in our country. Conversations about what justice is, what it means, what it looks like, how it's applied, what it requires. In fact, every major city across the U.S. experienced marches, protests, sometimes riots in the name of justice. In fact, I don't, I don't think I will forget. You know, I just, I'm a transplant to this area. We just moved from uh, Chicago. I don't think I will forget seeing the impact of some of these marches and, and riots in our own communities with buildings just down the street from where we lived, boarded up, broken glass, entire communities ripped apart because people found themselves on opposing sides of a conversation about justice. You think about where our country is now. In the aftermath of all of this, the, the, the dominant framework that has now set in uh, in the culture at large is, for, uh, is bifurcated between how uh, there are people who are just and then there are people who are unjust. There are people who are in power and there are those who, uh, whom they oppress. These are the major categories that we think through now. It is not a stretch to say that we live in a society, we live in a culture that is obsessed with the concept of justice. Right? We, don't, we don't have to teach this to anybody. It almost becomes, it's like stamped into us, part of the, uh, the human DNA. We have some sense of justice. Like, I don't need to teach my children uh, in fact, some of the most unjust things that my son right now can experience apparently have to do with Legos and somebody taking his Legos, right? Like, I didn't have to teach him uh, that, that he should have a visceral response when somebody dismantles his awesome creation. It's ingrained already in him. We're obsessed with justice. The problem, though, you may have picked up on this, is we can't quite seem to agree on how justice is supposed to work. Right? Who, who gets to define justice? If I go back to that thing about my son Malachi, he thinks it's a great injustice when Evelyn takes apart his creation. She thinks it's unjust that he had the Legos to begin with. <laughs> they should have been hers. Who's right? Who gets to define justice? 
How are we supposed to pursue it? What does a just society even look like? And, you know, no pun intended, but, you know, what, what means to get there are justified. What exactly is on the table here? See, as we jump, the reason I'm bringing this up is because as we jump into the back half of the book of Revelation, we are going to be bumping up against all of these kinds of questions. In fact, if you were to read this book from start to uh, finish, you would be bumping up against these kinds of questions over and over and over again. Really, justice is one of the dominant themes that runs its way through the course of this book. And today, as we look at chapter 16, we're going to land on this one idea. In fact, if you walk away thinking about anything, I want it to be this. God cares more about justice than any of us ever could. God cares more about justice and therefore injustice than any of us ever could. So if you're not there yet, open with me to Revelation 16. I'm going to read a part of this passage. We will pray and then we'll get started. Revelation 16, starting in verse 1. It's also on the screens behind me. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of, of the wrath of God. And so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood, the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And, and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we can be here in this place today. Lord, and even as we think about a passage like Revelation 16, recognize that the words we just read may evoke some very specific emotions within each and every one of us. Some of us are already starting to think, uh, that's it, that's exactly why I'm sick of religion uh, and want nothing to do with this type of uh, business. Others of us uh, are just kind of marvel at what this means. We try and reconcile a picture of you uh, for what your word says and maybe the mental picture we hold on to and maybe something doesn't fit as we read these words. God, we pray that for each one of us, you would speak directly directly to us, that we would experience uh, the confrontation and the comforting that the book of Revelation is supposed to bring in the hearts and minds of your people. God, we pray that you'd give us uh, ears to hear your word and that we would not just be hearers only, but we would go back out into the spaces and places where you have called us to be doers of your word. Lord, we trust you to use this time 
And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and get started. I told you we, we are jumping into the deep end of the pool uh, today. What, I mean, the question is, what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? What, what on earth are we supposed to do with a passage like this? But before we do that, I, I think it's helpful or will be helpful for us just, just for me to share a few thoughts on the book of Revelation in general. I know we're, we're just jumping into this as a church family. So let me give some, some guiding principles maybe that'll help us make sense of the book at large. And then we'll dive into this particular passage. The first thing to keep in mind is that the book of Revelation is a very specific genre that shows up in the Bible. Uh, in fact, it's a genre that shows up all over the ancient world. This is a genre we call a apocalyptic literature. Now, when we hear that word apocalypse, we think of the, like the end of the world, or remember that movie Armageddon from like the nineties? Yeah. We, we think of that type of thing, like comets coming, everything's going to be destroyed. That's what the word apocalypse, uh, brings up in our minds. It's actually a word that means, uh, uh something like a mystery that is made known an uncovering or a revealing or Revelation. That's where we get the title from. Uh, and in, in, in this type of literature, what it's famous for is all of these symbols and numbers and veiled references. The key, though, is that in apocalyptic literature, uh, it's not, we're not intended to take every symbol literally. We're not intended to take every element literally. We interpret this book literarily which means we, we think about what, what's the genre, what, what is this pointing to? So when it's talking about a dragon or a beast, we can understand this probably is not talking about an actual dragon, but this is referencing, pointing to something new. It doesn't mean the new thing that it's pointing to isn't real, it just means it's pointing to something else. So we keep that in mind as we read through this book. The second thing we want to keep in mind as we look through this book is uh, that these symbols and the, the flow of the book uh, at large uh, is not random. It's not randomly put together with all these things, even though it feels like that as we jump in and out through uh, this book. There is deep intentionality in how this book is put together for us. Dr. Uh, G.K. Beale, who is a leading thinker and writer about this book in the New Testament, he points out, this is interesting, he points out that 278 of the 404 verses in Revelation, that's 70%, just shy of 70% of this book, are direct references to the Old Testament. On top of that, there's about 500 allusions to the Old Testament, where it doesn't maybe use the exact word, but it's alluding to a story from the Old Testament. 500 times in this book alone, just in perspective, uh, if you take all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, he's got less than 200 allusions to the Old Testament. In all of his letters, there's 500 alone in the book of Revelation. Right? In a lot of ways, we need to see, that helps us understand, we need to see Revelation is not simply telling a new story about something God is going to do in the future. The book of Revelation is retelling the basic story God has laid out for his people in the Old Testament already, particularly the story of the Exodus. This is for those of you who like swimming in the deep end of the pool, right? This is, if you wanna take some, take some study home today, some homework, go back and read the book of Exodus. 
The book of Exodus is really the the backbone, the key to understanding what's happening in uh, the book of Revelation, right? This this storyline of the Exodus story where God is preparing a people for himself. He's calling them out of suffering and bondage and slavery. And he he does bring judgment in the book of Exodus. Remember the 10 plagues or Charlton Heston and his whole thing that we watch every Easter on on TV. He's bringing them into a new land. Right? This is retelling, the revelation is retelling the story of Exodus. Uh, finally, right, because we're jumping in today, uh, just over halfway through the book, let me summarize a few of the, the big movements that we've already, uh, that, that have already been covered in Revelation. The first five chapters of this book, the first five chapters are all devoted to Jesus, who he is, what he is like, what has been accomplished in his death and resurrection from uh, the dead. It's interesting to remember that John's original audience uh, was all living under the Roman Empire. And the language that John uses here, it's, it's, those of you, if you ever took Latin in in high school or or middle school, whenever you took Latin, if you did, uh, you'll pick up on some things here, some of the imagery, the language that John uses here is language that is really only uh, reserved for Caesar as a way for him to say that Jesus is even greater than the most powerful individual on the planet. The time this was written. Jesus is victorious even over that. Starting though in chapter six and seven, things take a bit of a turn in this book. And the focus is on what God will begin to do to set the world right, right? And this takes up about a third, a little over uh, more than a third of the book. God seeing what is wrong in the world and stepping in to say no more, right? He is putting an end uh, to what is wrong in the world. And to talk about this, John sets up several images, right? Uh, of, um, he, he talks about seven seals being broken, not, not seal like the zoo animal, right? But seal like on an old school letter being opened up. He'll talk about seven trumpets, uh, and each time the trumpet is played, something happened, or seven bi- you know, big bowls that are being poured out. That's what we're looking at uh, today, and each one of these comes uh, with a particular judgment on evil in the world. Now, these are not all different things that are happening, right? These are more, more likely three different perspectives uh, of the same events, just each time getting a little bit more detailed. And it's this third perspective, this third angle of judgment, uh, when he describes the bowls being poured out, that's where we find ourselves today. Right? This is in the section where John is telling us what God is doing to set the world right again. Okay, deep breath. Now we can get to our passage today. Look with me at verse one. Verse one. It says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels... Right, they've already done their seals. They've already uh, played, done the, their trumpets. He says, Now go and pour out on the earth the seven bulls of God's wrath. And there's, there's that phrase, God's wrath, the wrath of God. And even hearing it, like it, it, doesn't it just sound archaic or like ancient? Maybe even a bit fanatical, 
right? Like, like we think of the word wrath and we think of somebody who's like out of control, angry. They've lost their minds, out of control, angry. I think, I think this is outlines like kind of the basic problem we have with a passage like this. And, and much of Revelation, for that matter, the wrath is not in action. We, we really like to associate with God. Right? It violates the, the mental image we have of God. One, one person said it this way. I thought it was really helpful. You know, the uh, Bible talks about how we have a heavenly father. We like to envision that we actually have a heavenly grandfather. Uh, you know what I mean by that? He's maybe a little bit confused by this you know, current culture and doesn't really understand it and maybe doesn't agree with everything that are happening. But, you know, hey, the youths, they'll do what they're going to do. And he kind of sits a bit more laissez-faire, removed, live and let live. We like to envision God a bit more like that. And so the idea that, that God would unleash judgment on the earth, man, we're really not about that idea. That, that seems a little, little much. The problem is only complicated when you keep reading this passage, right? Because you see what that wrath and judgment looks like. And it's detailed. In fact, we're going to dive even deeper next week when we look at this next section in chapters 17 and 18. Look at verse 2 for a second. Right? You're going to see that these judgments involve sores forming on people, water turning into blood, famine, darkness, death. Interestingly enough, uh, I, I think that you know, these judgments, they start to sound a little familiar. Remember, if we're, if we're thinking that Revelation is retelling the story of the Exodus, these, these may start to sound a little familiar, right? <laughs> These judgments actually mirror almost exactly the 10 plagues in the book of Exodus over the Egyptians. But at the end of the day, I think if we're honest, we're not quite sure what to do with a passage like this. Right? We may not say it out loud, but we tend to think of judgment as an example of God flying off the handle. So what we do is we, we cringe a bit, we try not to bring it up that often, and then move on to the more lighthearted, welcoming topics of the Bible. And yet, do you see how maybe our views on judgment are kind of in conflict with our obsession with justice in our own society today. Because, because on the one hand, you see, we, we recognize, we recognize that there, there are things wrong in the world around us. There's something, even if we can't quite pinpoint exactly what it is, something is not quite right. More than that, we are confronted each and every day with the fact that there is true and real evil in the world around us. Right? We're going we're gonna to dig in deeper on that point specifically next week. Right? We, we, are, we desperately want something to be done about the injustice that we see in the world around us. We, we want justice, but when we talk about judgment... It just, it just feels like an overreaction, doesn't it? So again, we're not quite sure how to hold these things uh, in tension. And what ends up happening is, you know, we, we all run into this problem. We end up valuing one of these two things at the expense of the other. Whether, whether we rec recognize it or not, we, we tend to think in terms of justice or judgment, 
justice or judgment. And some of us, I think about it this way, some of us have a natural bend to value justice over against judgment or justice without judgment. This is your view. This is your view, justice without judgment. If you think God's response to evil, and if you think of his response to evil and wickedness and brokenness and sin in the world around us, if you think about it only in terms of forgiveness, right? that, that, if, that if he really were an all-loving God, uh, he, he would simply forgive people and move on. Right? He would forgive all people of all things so that we could all kind of move on with our lives. And, you know, I, I, to be honest, I understand why that is an attractive option. Because it sounds like, uh, it sounds like you can have a God who is just willing to be the, the bigger person here and, you know, take the hit and, you know, he'll suck it up, move on and forgive. And if that's the posture you take... Right? You, you, you don't need to worry about any of this like judgment or wrath or hell business. I mean, drop, drop that baggage and move on. Uh, and the plus side, Christianity starts to feel a little bit more palatable. But when you really stop and think about it, but we have to ask, if that, does that equation actually work? Justice minus judgment. What, what do we get? What does that equal? I think about when my kids are fighting, right? Just go back to that example again, right? I mean, again, the most grievous thing that can possibly happen to my son is when my daughter plays with his Legos or destroys one of his creations. Uh, the, the other day, I was, I was sitting down. I was so nice. We just moved in. I got the kids settled upstairs. I had my coffee. I've got my book. And I'm an oblivious fool to the cares of the world. And then it sounded like somebody was getting murdered upstairs in my home. <laughs> Like, like something horrifying has just happened, taken place upstairs. So I run upstairs, and again, I find the same story playing out, right? She took my castle, or I wasn't paying attention to what he built. She, she destroyed my thing. So we sit down and have a conversation again about it, the same conversation we're, we're, we're having. But imagine for a second if I, if in that scenario, I looked at my daughter, Evelyn, who, who has clearly done something to my son, and I said, Evelyn, don't worry about it, I forgive you. And I went back downstairs. That would be nothing, right? That would be absolutely nothing. I, you know, I have done nothing of value in that conversation at all. There, there has been no writing of any wrong. There's been me saying, I'm, I'm ready to be done with this and not be annoyed by this situation anymore. But there's no writing of any wrong that has happened. And I, I know that that is, is a minor example, but, but if it works on that level, it just becomes more intense as you ratchet up uh, the more serious issues. Imagine sitting in a courtroom and watching a mother uh, uh, seeing the conviction process of, of the, the man who just murdered her daughter or murdered her son, and the judge looks at the mother and says, don't worry, I've forgiven him. Good for you. There's no writing of any wrong there. Justice without judgment it feels like, and it feels like the, the loving thing to do, but it is ultimately meaningless because it does nothing to right any wrong. 
But at the same time, there are those of us uh, who value judgment over justice. And this, is, this works a little, this is harder to see how it works because it's more subtle. We often don't uh, intentionally step into this space where we value judgment over justice. This is when we tell ourselves that in the pursuit of making things right, the ends justify the means. I, th- I think we are particularly susceptible to this uh, way of thinking when we are responding to someone who has hurt us deeply. Right, it's, a, it's a subtle belief that I can and therefore should go to any length necessary to make someone feel the pain that they have made me feel. Right, and in, in a strange and backwards kind of way that none of us really see coming, we, we can so give ourselves over to the pursuit of judgment in the name of justice that we, actually, we can become just a, as much a part of the problem as the next person. This very fascinating uh, quote from the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who has this fascinating insight on the human condition. He said this, Beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. What he's talking about is this person who is so driven by their pursuit of uh, judgment and uh, just, just to make things right that they end up doing the same thing that they're trying to fight. It's judgment at the expense of justice. It feels like the right response sometimes because we can so convince ourselves uh, that we are absolutely in the right here, that we we are uh, fighting such a good fight, such a righteous cause that we're fighting for, that that anything can be excused along the way as long as we get the outcome we're looking for. At the end of the day, judgment without justice even though it feels good. Judgment without justice is not true judgment. It's actually slavery. We don't recognize it, but but we become enslaved to our opinion. We become enslaved to our pursuit of being in the right. See, See, justice without judgment is not justice. It might be vengeance. It's not justice. Judgment without justice is not judgment. And while we tend to oscillate back and forth between these two, we are confronted with the profound idea that God's idea of judgment and his idea of justice are, are, are uh, profoundly different from our own. Right? The, 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 that these two are intricately connected in a way in God's mind, in God's ideal, that is absolutely necessary for us to understand a passage like this and necessary to keep us from falling into one of these two traps we just talked about. Look at me at verse five. Verse five. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you. O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. That, it is what they deserve. 
And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. You see, ultimately what we see here in Revelation 16 is that God's final judgment, his final judgment is his final response to evil and injustice in uh, the world. It it is this moment where, where God unilaterally does something about what is wrong in the world around us. And once and for all, God says, no. He says, no more. Friends, do you see that? Far from this being a picture of some cosmic bully, God's just judgment displays his deepest care and concern for the world that he has created. I mean, it it says once and for all, a God who takes seriously both justice and judgment says once and for all, things are not the way that they are supposed to be. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. We experience things. Some of us in this room have deep scars from things that we should not have gone through, that you should not have experienced. And God's judgment shows that he cares far more about injustice than any of us ever could. More than that, it shows us that he has not overlooked a single thing that we have experienced in this life. Some of you need to hear that. God has not overlooked a single thing that has been done to you in your life. There may be no good reasons as to why you've encountered that, why you've gone through that season. There are no quick solutions to make you feel better about it all. But the story of God's judgment in this mysterious and wild way actually shows you, reminds you that God has not forgotten about it. Or he has not turned a deaf ear to your pain, to your sorrow, to your heartache. Remember what I said about the book of Exodus and the book of Revelation, how Revelation is really retelling this story that we see in Exodus. It's not just an interesting thing to file away. I think there's, there is a way that John wants us to connect these two stories, the Exodus and uh, the book of Revelation. And there, there is... There's this famous scene in the book, the Exodus story. You might re- remember this. This is when God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. You, you remember this story? He speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. And this is what really gets all the things started. Because after this conversation, Moses is sent to Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh refuses to listen. And his heart is hardened. And uh, the plagues come. And his heart is hardened again. And more plagues come, which is... Interesting that that is the same cycle you see play out in these judgments. But before, before that, you know, any of the plagues, before Moses actually sets foot in front of Pharaoh, God says this to Moses. Exodus chapter three, verse seven. And the Lord said this. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. This conversation happens after 400 years of them in slavery, in Egypt, beaten, oppressed, taken advantage of. They they have experienced a deep injustice and have no reason to think anything will ever change. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. 
I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, I have seen your affliction. He says, I've, I've heard your cry. Before judgment, he says, I know your suffering. You see, in God's judgment, then, he acts. In God's judgment, he responds. In God's judgment, he says, time is up and evil will be no more. In God's judgment, he proves that he cares far more about injustice than any of us ever could. Now, before we finish up, there's one final problem we have with God's judgment. See, it's one thing for us to talk about this uh, from a distance. And what I mean by that is we can easily have a conversation about the things that are wrong in the world around us. Very easy to have that conversation. The, it, 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 not, not fun to have it, but we, we, we can talk about the evil things that we have experienced. All right, but what happens when the problem uh, is not just with those around us, but when the problem is us? You see, central to the Christian story, to the story of the gospel, is that brokenness uh, and, and evil does not just reside in the world around us, but it actually takes up residence in our own hearts and minds. This is the human condition, uh, that, that we are broken, that we are flawed. We are not uh, basically uh, good but each of us possesses a profound capacity to hurt and harm those around us. And each of us have stories of places where we have done that. See, and th this is what the Bible it means when it uses that word sin. And all of us are guilty. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, uh, talks about it this way, saying all of us, all of humanity... All of us have sinned and fallen short of the life that God has created for us. And because God is just, you see, because God is just, it means he will do something about our sin, not just the things that have been done to us. He will do something about the, the, the sin that we have contributed, about our brokenness, about our failure to live the way that we have been created to live. He says it this way, Romans 3. It's on the screen behind me. Again, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, this, this profound word that means uh, blood sacrifice, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Here it is. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, while we deserve judgment, 
The gospel shows us that God has given up Jesus as a sacrifice in our place. It shows us that Jesus steps down into our place, taking on uh, the judgment, our judgment himself, that the full weight of God's wrath is placed on Jesus. He, I mean, he, he takes the bull that we could not bear, the bull of wrath we could not bear. He takes the wrath under which we could not stand, right? As he becomes the sacrifice in our place, for our sin. And in this, we see God's judgment uh, on sin is not just because he counts to 10, blows off some steam and moves on. His, his, his judgment over sin, he is just in that because his wrath is poured out on Christ. He has done something to make things right. Friends, and the hope of the gospel is that when we place our faith in Jesus, pledging our allegiance to him and him alone, we find that our debt, our guilt paid in full, we find our guilt forgiven, we find new life and a new kind of life in Jesus. Friends, when we look to the cross, we see both judgment and justice, and how God holds both of these things together. Finally, again, we ask, what, what, what do we do? What do we go out and do with a passage like this? Friends, it, it, there are so many passages of scripture that I think we try and find a just a practical thing I need to go do this week that will, you know, fulfill this passage. And there's, there's nothing wrong with practical passages. There are some passages that lead us to marvel in front of who God is and what he has done. To sit in that moment and marvel at the, the gravity and beauty of what God has done. And I, th I think this is one of those passages. And we... we I think sometimes we struggle to see the connection between the death of Jesus on a cross and my, my own sin and brokenness, or, or the, particularly when things have been done to us, we wrestle with like, how, how could, like, what business does God have in forgiving that person who did something to me? You, you see the tension there? I think sometimes we miss the profound nature of what happens on the cross is the, 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 the weight, the fullness of God's wrath for all that has been done in this world fully poured out on Jesus who lovingly and willingly steps into that place. See, it doesn't mean we misunderstand the, um, the, 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 the gospel itself. I think it means we, we underappreciate the, the, the momentous uh, activity of Jesus on the cross and what's taking place. That we, 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 as followers of Jesus today, need to marvel at what has happened at the cross. The second thing that this means is that those of us right now, I, I mean... Some of you now are just in this place where you're having to endure. Like you, you have been on the receiving end of injustice and it, it, like it's not like there's a nice bow you can tie at the end of your story right now. 
One of the things that a passage like this does is it says, friend, in Jesus, you can endure through even some of the most unimaginable seasons of life. That God has not forgotten you. The same words that he spoke to Moses in Exodus 3 are the words that he speaks to you today. I see your affliction. I hear your cry. I know your suffering. And the book of Revelation, particularly chapter 16, says the day is coming when God says, no more. Done. Last thing. Those of you who are here today who are not followers of Jesus, maybe you've just been skeptical about this Christianity thing, you know, what it means to follow Jesus or what any of this has to do with the way that you live today. Like the haunting reality of what Revelation points to is that one day there is something that will be done about the injustice in the world around us that you have experienced and contributed to. The next step for you, if that's you today, is to turn to Christ. The offer for you is that you can find new life, a new way of life by faith in Jesus, by pledging your allegiance to him and him alone. And what you find in that moment is a shelter, safety. You find that you are brought into God's family, delivered out of judgment. Because what you have earned for yourself has been taken on by Jesus. For you, that next step today is to put your faith in Jesus. Come up and have a conversation with me after the service or Jason after the service. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means and looks like to follow Jesus. Friends, Revelation 16 is a stunning passage. There's so much we, 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 could, have, uh, we could have also talked about. One of the hardest things to do as a pastor when I work through a passage like this is recognizing, man, I just got to start chopping things out of this message because you can't cover it all. But if there's one thing I think we need to walk away thinking about today, it's this. God cares far more about justice and therefore injustice than any of us ever could. Let's pray. Father, we, we are so grateful uh, for your kindness to us. Thank you that you are one who knows us, who loves us. And we just we reflect on the, the words that we, we heard from Exodus chapter 3, that you, you know our suffering. You, you've heard, you've seen our affliction, you've heard our cries, you know our suffering. You are one who knows us. And we long for that day when the world is made right. God, we confess that so often we hold these two things in, uh, we hold these two things and value one over the other. Sometimes we give ourselves over to just a, a blind pursuit of justice, no matter what the cost. Father, we look to you who holds both justice and judgment together. You brought them together at the cross that in Jesus, we might find true and lasting healing, forgiveness, and restoration. But you are good. And so uh, with the, the angel in Revelation 
uh, 16, Lord, we, we confess to you that you are holy. You are just. As your people today, we say you are worthy. And some of us need a moment today to, to process what we've heard, process the things that we've been thinking about. I pray that long after we leave this place, you would continue to preach to us by your Holy Spirit. Do far more than just challenge our thinking, change our hearts. We wanna be faithful to you. We thank you that you care far more about justice and injustice than any of us ever could. We're thankful that you, uh, as a promise, will do something to set the world right. We thank you, we trust you, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together.